I wonder if my if I could start by asking you how you would assess the state of health of our culture's imagination in 2017. I would say we are at quite a high level of imagination because uh, when I was a child, um, the inventions that I remember coming into the home were the microwave and the VHS, um, the video recorder. And they were the two things we had to learn to program. And that was it. Uh, Whereas a child growing up now, every day there's a new app, uh, there's a new game, uh, you can build your own software. Like we used to come home from school and watch television. We'd read books. And you could say, well, you know, reading books activates your imagination more than watching TV. But now children are sitting there making world of, uh, is it Minecraft? They sit there and make whole worlds um, and simulate whole worlds. Um, And there's a there's a creative component to so much of what we do uh, on Facebook. Uh, If there's a news story breaks, we all have to have an angle or a joke or an idea. We have to write a little piece about it. Um, On Twitter, there's a creative constraint, 140 characters. Can you write a joke about something, you know, that say there was the the children that crashed the Skype call on the news the other day. Yeah. Everyone tries to come up with 140 characters, and often that's a real challenge for me because I've, I've, I've got my joke, but it's 170 characters. So I have to go, well, do I need that bit? Uh, can I say it more tightly? So I think there are so many more demands and opportunities for us to be imaginative now uh, than they used to be when we were in a much more passive consumer world. Now, the other side of that, of course, is there are very negative things about the internet, but as far as uh, imagination goes, I think probably um, technology has really been our friend there. Um, I, there was a passage in your book where you were talking about the impacts that uh, getting involved in improv had had on your life, and you said, I'm more playful, more likely to say yes even when I shouldn't, less frightened of doing new things, more in touch with my imagination, and I love any sort of opportunities for performance. And as somebody who's involved in uh, sort of camp- work around climate change and trying to get people involved in trying to make the world a better place, particularly at this time where that's a um, very important thing to be doing. Those really struck me as the qualities that we could really use uh, in in making that sort of change happen. How can we cultivate that sort of spirit more widely in society, do you think? Uh, well, a lot of what you learn in improvisation is about trust, um, to be open to what your partner is saying and really respond to that. So we talk about saying yes and, and when uh, when uh, you first say yes and, what people want to do is say the words yes and, but not really mean them. So it'll be, let's go to Paris on holidays. Yes, and let's go up the Eiffel Tower. Yes, and let's go down the Champs-Élysées shopping. Yes, and let's go for dinner. And those things, all yes and Paris, but they don't yes and the last suggestion. They less yes and the first suggestion. So in other words, while you're talking, I can be thinking of my thing. Um, and to really yes and in the, in the moment, that's what takes trust. Because it makes you feel vulnerable. Because if I have to yes and the last thing you said, then I have to be changed by you. And ultimately, we only want to be changed by people we really trust. Because otherwise, you could change me. You could say, well, um, something that's going to make me uncomfortable. You might say, um, let's go to a strip club. And then I might say, uh, yes, and 
uh, let's watch uh, the um, the strippers, and you could say yes, and let's get up and start stripping ourselves. Now, if I if I don't feel comfortable with that, um, it's it's really easy for me to block and withdraw. So if I'm working with someone I don't know very well, um, or I'm working in a genre I don't know very well or a medium, I might hold back more control. Um, and I think. Uh, that in because in impro it's all play it's all pretend it's all jokes it's all it's all mind it's all imagination um we are probably safer to go to those places um and to explore that side of ourselves but when it's real world if i have to yes and what you say i lose control with con with consequence on in an impro scene not so much even if it's sort of like oh i'm going into an area i personally wouldn't go into but it's pretend it's made up it's imagined it's not truthful it's not real so um that's that's the, the training to yes and just makes you more open to life i think we put up lots of no's because no's keeps us safe um we're all survivors uh and you know we, we have an instinct to survive by which i mean we all we all we all want to survive and we're expert at surviving we'll assess constantly where there's danger if you're walking home in london for example you'll see a dark street and a light street you'll go down the light street you'll see where there's lots of people who are together and shops and you'll go towards that as opposed to the side of the street where there's one guy on his own and you're not quite sure what's going on there um we're just making these choices all the time you get on a bus there's some have yeah so some somebody who looks suspicious to you or a little bit um uh some there's something aggressive going on at the back of the bus you go upstairs um there's uh we're constantly making choices um to keep ourselves safe and to say no to things and to rule things out, rule out possibilities. Um, and so impro pushes you into yes. And then you discover yes is really fun. And there's a lot of times in real life where we'd say no out of habit or out of this idea that we'll be safer, where we won't be safer. Uh, we'll just have less fun, go on less adventures or fewer adventures. So I think in terms of you know exploring for climate change, the first thing I would say is create a playful space in which there are no consequences for ideas. Um, because people want to censor as they create all the time. They want to edit as they create. And I always say there's a reason that the editor doesn't follow the director around on a film set going, we won't use that. No, I wouldn't bother shooting from that angle because I'll never use it. Um, the editor is in a different time of the process. The, what the director is shooting is choice. Lots and lots of yes. Then, then the director goes and sits with the editor and the editor is saying, no, we don't need that. We don't need that. We don't need that. And I always think if you're not happy with your end product, it's usually because you didn't say yes enough at the beginning or no enough at the end. So you need yes and you need no, but those are best off in separate processes. Um, and that's the mistake people make. So you, you go and to sit and talk about climate change. Someone says, well, I think we could do this. Someone else immediately says, well, they tried that in Japan and it didn't work because, well, we wouldn't have the budget for that. So there's so much no, mm. so much no. Uh, so I would say uh, find ways of genuinely creating uh, rewards for yes in the first instance and uh, playful environments where we are not editing as we go. We're editing later, but reassure people edits will happen later because then they panic. They panic that yes means conclusion, it's done. And so no, yes is just we're looking for quantity, not quality at the mm -hmm. top. And then through this massive amount of quantity, we will find quality. I love the thing you do. I watched a couple of videos of you doing that, your your A to Z storytelling about different things. 
Oh, yeah. And uh, I like keep wondering about whether that's something I might be able to use in talks, you know, kind of get people, when you've got lots of people together, to, to tell a story about how the, the, the transformation that their own community went through, you know, to tell that story using that way could be quite fun, I think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the, the alphabet creates a creative or an imaginative uh, trigger, but also a constraint. Because if you put nothing into the Google search and hit search, it'll say you haven't narrowed it down enough. So sometimes we give ourselves the option of everything, and then there's just too many things and we can't choose. Whereas if I say, come up with a profession that starts with the letter B, you can immediately think of Baker or you know bus driver. Um, if I say, what should this character do for a living? You think, oh God, it's such, well, I don't know, what's good? Um, and <laughs> what's the right answer? <laughs> yeah, what's the right answer, absolutely. But uh, name a profession starting with the letter G is easier than what should Gary do for a mm, living. Mm, mm. So sometimes can, give, can narrowing down the options can be the best thing you can do for yourself. <clears throat> um, in, at the moment, it, it feels increasingly like people are, are time poor uh, and, and busier and busier and busier. And this seems to me anyway, like there's, there's less time for play uh, in people's lives and sort of less time for playing children's lives because they seem to be so busy and pushed and, and stressed yeah. with things. What happens to a culture when it loses its ability to play? How does that manifest, do you think? What are the risks with that? Um, well, all innovation, it has, it, almost, almost all innovation or all innovation that, that works and is useful is probably born out of imaginative play of some sort or another so that could be you know we all come up with our best ideas no one comes up with their best ideas when there's a where there's a strip lighting and a whiteboard and someone saying come on now we need 10 good ideas um we are if you ask people they always say oh i came up with that when i was was just falling asleep and suddenly it occurred to me and i woke up and i wrote it on a notepad or i was swimming or i was riding my bicycle or i was um, we were sitting in the pub and we put it on the back of, an, back of a serviette or a napkin or an envelope or something um, and that's the uh, that, that's, that's, that's the common experience we, we all know we've come up with incredible ideas when we've been in a playful mood with someone that we really trust and we're really open to um, so my concern if we were to be in an environment where there wasn't any play then we would lose an awful amount of innovation. So that's why if you go to visit Facebook, they've got lots of games everywhere. So there's, there's um, partly that's to keep people wanting to, you know, stay late <laughs> because where are they going to go that's more fun than somewhere that has a taco bar and an Xbox? But um, but partly it's to create a spirited, playful environment where people are uh, feeling like uh, they're they're imaginative they're playing games they're joking about um because those things are uh unlikely to inspire innovation in technology hmm. and do you know do you know anything about you know when is there much work on when people do improv what's going on uh inside their brains are there sort of pathways being remade that we've lost is there is is, is there a is there much sort of research about that that you know of actually don't know i don't know but i'm sure i'm sure there are i'm sure your brain lights up in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways when you improvise <laughs> um but yeah just being if you can train yourself to just really be there and be in the moment 
Uh, my impro teacher, Patty Styles, um, who's a fan, you know, one of the best impro teachers in the world, she always says, don't make an offer, assume an offer's already been made. So, so how is your partner sitting? How are they looking at you? Are they not looking at you? Um, what, what, are they, what are they doing? Um, or what did you pick up from that tone of voice? And respond to that rather than wildly thinking, what can I come up with next? What, what wacky idea can I come up with next? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like what, and that's uh, that's what I think often gets missed out is being really being there in that moment. Um, I don't know what the neurology of it is, but something different is definitely happening in my brain hmm. if I'm really there, and if I can if I can tie up the intellect. That's what Keith Johnston always talks about. Uh, who wrote the very seminal book in Pro, and she he taught Patty, and Patty taught me. I mean, I've worked with Keith on and off but um patty really trained me um but he talks about tying up the intellect so that you can you can it's a bit like same as what they're trying to do in yoga it's it's uh you're, you're trying to turn the conscious controlling brain off which is kind of on all of the time um so uh i i really uh can i can get into that state fully i notice if i do a one person improv format where I play all the characters because I have not, if, I, if I'm having a conversation with myself, I just don't have time to plan. I can only be in the moment. Mm. And it's a very different state. You feel it. I've, I've done scenes like that where I could hear the audience laughing. And I remember thinking, what are the audience laughing at? I can hear, I can, it was like I could hear an audience laughing, but it was like they were laughing at something else because I didn't have enough brain space given I was physicalizing for two people verbalizing for two people emoting for two people and there were no breaks in between I didn't have enough brain space to be conscious that there was an audience watching me and certainly to plan to do anything intellectual at all hmm. and that's when you find it's like a, it's something different must be happening in your brain then because you just you feel it's almost like an out-of-body experience one of the questions that I've asked a few people has been, if, if you were, rather than on a platform of make America great again, if you had been elected as the prime minister on a, on a platform of uh, make the UK imaginative again, uh-huh. if, you, if you were to sort of put the strengthening and boosting of imagination in our culture uppermost in, in your priorities, what might you do in your first hundred days, do you think? Uh, if I wanted to make a country more imaginative, yeah. Um, oh, um, uh, I think probably um, teach grown-ups how to play, uh, because I noticed that I did a g- game of um, tag, like Chase, you know, who's it, with some grown-ups and children, and I noticed that the children just intuitively knew that their job was to play cat and mouse with the person who was trying to catch them. So they'd go on home, for example, and um, they'd, then they'd take the hand off home and go, I'm, I'm off home, I'm off home, and they'd run a little bit away from it within the sphere of the person who was meant to be catching them, and, be play, and they would play with the tension of how close can I get to you without getting caught. And then they'd sort of run home, and the joke, the game was um, to flirt with being caught but not be caught, but they also understood that the game is boring if no one's ever caught. 
the game's frustrating for it, and ultimately it's not fun anymore if everyone just never gets caught. That's not the game. That's not a game. But the grown-ups would basically get in the car and drive to Birmingham because they thought the they thought the object was to succeed. <laughs> they thought they, they really run into the distance. Well, what are you doing? Because that's not fun. Uh, and they they didn't understand. There's no game if you're too far away from the person chasing you. There's only success. There's no there's only competence. Mm-hmm. You will succeed in not being caught, but that's not the same as uh, as playing the game. And grown-ups are so obsessed with competence. And I see it, like we play a game called uh, uh, Bibbidi Bibbidi Bop. So I point to you and say, Bibbidi Bibbidi Bop, you've got to say Bop before I say Bop. So if I go Bibbidi Bibbidi Bop, then you go Bop, you're in the middle. If I point to you and say uh, Bop, you have to say nothing at all, otherwise you're in the middle. So of course, if I point to you and go Bibbidi Bibbidi Bop, you want to say Bop, but if I point to you and say Bop, you panic as well and you want to say Bop. <laughs> And then if I point you and say elephant and then count to 10 as quickly as possible, you and the people on either side of you have to make an elephant. So you do the trunk and they, they put their arms up to make ears and so on and so on. And I really notice with grown-ups that if I go, when I talk in pro a lot, I play this game as a warm-up. And um, I say, okay, there's a new one now. Now we're going to do James Bond, 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Person in the middle is James, people on the other side are Bond girls and they go, oh, James. Um, and so once you've done sort of three... If you go, okay, now, and everyone, once everyone gets competent, you need to add another one. Otherwise, the person in the middle is pointing at people who can do the thing they're being asked to do. And you need, the funniest part of this game is when people panic and they do an elephant here when they're meant to be a Bond girl, or they say, oh, James, when they're meant to be a, 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 a trunk of an elephant, or they say Bop when they're meant to be saying nothing, or that's what's fun about this game. So when everyone gets too good, I'll go, okay, we're going to add another one. And I see grown-ups go, oh, they actually make a noise, like, Oh no! I'll never remember another one. And and whereas if I say to children, we're going to add another one, yay! Or children start saying, I've got one, and they start inventing them. Children will invent them. They'll go, I've got a really good one, and then they'll want to do one about their favourite football player or you know X Factor or something that they that they're into, and they just invent their own. But they don't. They don't. I don't say, would you like to invent your own? They just go oh, can we do X Factor? And then they create one in front of you and you go, great. Um, but they're dying for more. They're so thrilled to have more because they don't think the point, they think the point is to have fun and be playful. They get that if they get out, that's, that means they get to have a go in the middle. So they, they look excited when they get to go into the middle. They don't go, oh. and I see grown-ups go, I failed now. I failed to be an elephant's ear in the allotted time. <laughs> like, that matters. Like, I'm like, and I start to explain this and unpack this for the grown-ups and kind of go, so see that noise you made when I said another one? Now, this is an opportunity to see another sort of silly made-up thing to have a go at that. That's that's what the opportunity is there to do. What you're, The noise you're making is of people who feel that they need to be competent at making an aeroplane in a, in a very short period of time and that if they're not if the, if they don't make the airplane successfully they will feel they've failed because you're obsessed with competence and i say to them if i've group of 10 year olds and i say we're gonna we're gonna do another one what noise do they make and they'll go and they'll go yay and i go exactly because the 10 year olds don't give a fuck about whether or not they can successfully make an elephant the elephant the 10 the, the year olds have fun making the elephant and think it's hysterical to try Mm -hmm. and they want to do they want to learn as many of these silly things to do as possible they want to have as many goes as possible they're interested in quantity not quality 
but also they just don't see it as a personal failure if they say bop when they were meant to say nothing or they meant they say they say oh james when they were meant to say hit the floor so you know it it's it's they get what games are so i would you can show you can you can because grown-ups laugh when you say this to them when you go so what so what's the consequence of you not making an elephant in three or however many seconds it takes to count to ten very fast probably three seconds what's the consequence of you failing at that so what will happen we'll go one of us will go in the middle right and what's the consequence of that i go to get to go up point pointing at other people and making right so you get the power position now yeah you get to point at other people and make them do it the pressure's off you you're just pointing at other people and making them do stuff right so so there's are there, are there any other consequences i'll go no no, no oh oh and it's just literally that they see everything as a as a as a, like a competence exam and i and i sort of start saying like well okay so we're improvisers we're, we're artists for us we want glorious successes and crash and burn failures competences for civil servants and they go oh okay so there's this liberation then to kind of go um you know you it's okay to all all we're interested in is glorious you know glorious successful scenes or crash and burn failures but if you stay happy when you crash and burn the audience adore you because they're not used to seeing people fail and stay happy that's what clowns are clowns mm. are people who fail and stay happy if a clown gets in his little clown car drives across the uh the circus ring picks up a pint of milk and then comes back that is not a successful piece of clowning because it's too competent mm-hmm. um, what a clown needs to do is drive halfway across all the wheels fall off his car then he gets out or she gets out to try and put the wheels back on but they fail at that the wheels keep coming off and every time they get back in the car the wheels come off again but because the clown stays happy and curious um it's entertaining to watch hmm. if the if the if the wheels fall off the car and the clown goes oh, fucking hell it's gonna be hours before the aa gets here and i've got to get to the other side of the circus ring and looks all pissed off that's not a successful clown either because that's yeah. we can see that on the side of the road on the m40 um so understanding that if you fail and stay happy you're a clown um that kind of thing so i would teach people i would teach i would i would teach grown-ups process for play and remind them because when you when you point this out they laugh and they go oh yeah why do i care and they see it and they get it and they experience it so i suppose i'd i'd almost have sort of some kind of um um i mean mandatory in pro training doesn't seem like fun either but an <laughs> option for impro training or if that's not your thing because performance makes you anxious uh drawing uh if that's not your thing because uh, for some other reason, um, music. Um, so what? what's the thing, or it could be sport, um, but what's the thing where we can break down the process of play, get people to enjoy it, um, and get as many adults as possible um, in, in, you know, in fantasy world, it's something where we, you know, we just say, well, it's a, it's a condition of, you know, if you're making a fantasy island, you have a condition of entry or whatever, um, that everyone, everyone does this. Um, if it's you know real world well we say we make these things um freely available for people and we we encourage communities to have this and then i would actually just create environments for children because children know this intuitively and then i would get the grown-ups working with the children 
um, to play together. And you have to allow, allow the grown-ups to lower their inhibitions because we have a lot more inhibitions than children. But once you've done that, get the children teaching the grown-ups. And when, if I ever teach children, I always say, oh, you're much better at this than grown-ups. There's so many things I just do not need to teach them. Don't mm. need to teach them at all. That they, they are already 10 steps ahead of grown-ups in so many things. So I say to them, I had once did a... Um, it was sort of uh, like a Hackney Tower Hamlets type thing for teenagers. Over It was like a summer school for teenagers, and I taught them. And it, I was saying, it was school schools, grown-ups, it takes them six weeks to learn what you already know. Um, so don't let what, hap- what happens to grown-ups happen to you. Trust your obvious, trust your talent. Um, have lots of go. All of these things you're doing, you are, they'll want to take that from you and don't don't let that happen. And I, I pointed out all of the things they could do intuitively that I didn't need to teach them. Things about stories being obvious, they're, they're incredible. And uh, and I was saying, you're much, much better than grown-ups who so don't, don't, you know, that, that you'll be, you're better at your teachers, your parents, and they loved hearing that because, of course, they're always told they've got to learn everything and they're not as good as, en- as mm. anything. Um, so I would, I would say to them, you're better. So understanding what children are better at and then letting the grown-ups learn from the children would also be a great thing um but i don't think we are in a less imaginative time i I really don't i feel like uh for example i have a very successful podcast which in the old days i would have had no way to broadcast and find my audience the guilty feminist if i pitched that to tv networks before podcasts were available, they would have all said, oh, we don't think television is going to play on, uh, feminism will play on television. Um, If we did, we'd want someone more famous than you. You know, they they would put all these roadblocks up. Mm. And whereas what I've been able to do is put the podcast out there and see, playfully see if I've got, if there's an audience for this. And if I'd done 10 episodes and no one was listening, what have I lost? I've had a go at doing a podcast. Mm -hmm. But if, as it is, people have really responded to it and so oh well it doesn't really matter what the tv people say i can play build this format develop it you know have goes at you know and it's changed quite a lot in this year and three months i've been doing it um and because i've i've got a play space but the audience and the listeners who found it and the audience who turn up to the live shows have also engaged with this as a play space um and there are no gatekeepers there are no gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets to tell me. And if you work in television, it's like there's a, there's a hundred producers standing over it. There's well, we've got the budget, and they it's the play. A lot of the play in the format development often is 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 killed and replaced with. We think this will work. This will be safer. Um, so the fact that I can broadcast now as a comedian, no one can stop me. And it doesn't really cost terribly much, and I can invent. I can listen to the what the audience is saying. I can come up with new ideas. If I've got a new idea, I can try it out next week. I've got another podcast called Global Pillage, which is a comedy-based panel show. I get to host it just because I want to, because I said so. There's no, no other reason. And I can, um, it's diverse. I get booked diverse comedians because it's all about cultural diversity. And, you know, I on the weekend we did one, I was the only white person on the panel often there's no men on the panel like it's just we can create our own world and create mm. our own play space mm. and it's so fun and so playful and so delightful um and uh you know I, I just get to be as imaginative as i like and i i do it with um thank you uh 
Ned Sedgwick, who writes the questions and um, keeps the scores and fills us in on you know more details on the facts. And we have such a playful relationship. No one would have employed us to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and everyone who comes in and plays says, oh God, I love it. You know, nearly every comedian we've ever had on has commented on how playful the space is. Um, but and the audience love it because they get to play. The hive mind get to play. So it's two teams of comedians versus the hive minds. The audience always get to answer, and they're so playful. They often make jokes. And the audience, so anyone in the audience can shout out an answer, the hive mind can shout out an answer, and then the hive mind has to buzz for the one they believe in. They have to back an answer, so everyone in the audience gets to play, even if they haven't shouted out an answer. They buzz for the one they think. And sometimes they back the wrong horse. Of course, someone said the right thing, but they didn't get behind it. So they get very playful, but sometimes they will deliberately back the funniest answer, although they obviously know that's not the real answer, because they want to commend the audience member who made the good joke. And it's it's so playful, it's so fun. They're not always going, we've got to have the maximum amount of points. Sometimes they go, we want to have the maximum amount of fun. Mm-hmm. Now, I just get to do that show. And people, thousands of people listen to that show. Um, you know, every week, thousands of people listen to that show. I would not be allowed to do that on television. Like, so, so the fact that artists, are, have artists control the means of production now. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's huge. And that's happened in the last 10 years. Um, everybody edits their own newspaper now who's on social media. Everybody. We choose what we share. We choose how we edit what we share. We choose, we have editorial on everything. We have to comment on everything. And sometimes that's exhausting. And I think the the social and emotional consequences of having to have an opinion on every news story or, or worrying people will think you don't care if you don't share a certain news story or haven't have a comment or opinion is that pre- probably pretty exhausting for us. But I have a newspaper now, like a little mini newspaper where I go, oh, this is a feminist story. I really care about this and I'm going to share that. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I saw that on someone else's newspaper, but it's not really something that I'm interested in sharing, but I'll like that. Um, oh, this is something that I feel I've got a really good comment on. So I'll create a little bit of editorial and opinion. I'll, I'll run a little op-ed piece for my Facebook wall or a link on my Twitter feed to a blog. When, when did we have that? When did an ordinary person, okay, I'm a comedian and I'm a writer, but ordinary people with regular jobs in software development, people who work at KFC, have a newspaper. Mm-hmm. They can comment, they can write, they can look at how we've become photographers. When did we take photos in the past? Birthday parties, Christmas, holidays, three times a year. We take, you know, anything like that. Now, oh, I've walked past a beautiful tree and there's light coming through it. I will not only take a beautiful photo of that, I'll edit it, I'll filter it, and I have a gallery, an online gallery, where other people can share what I've just seen. So people take pictures of their foot in autumn leaves or um, a a cool cloud or, you know, they... uh, you know you can take 25 photos of your friends doing funny poses and recreating uh, an album cover and edit process the best one and put it up on instagram so when you look at the outlets and the platforms we've got we are now writers we're artists we're creators um i saw sarah silverman saying i used to want to i think it was amy Schumer saying on twitter i used to I want to meet my soulmate and fall in love and now I just settle for a guy who doesn't have his own podcast which I thought was absolutely hilarious and basically it's a commentary 
on how many people Amy Schumer meets who goes, have you heard my podcast? <laughs> Normal people who have regular jobs, they're not artists, they're not radio broadcasters, will go, I really bloody love medieval history or I've got a thing for Game of Thrones and I want to talk to my best mate about Game of Thrones. And they find a little audience for that, you know, just them chatting or commentating about stamps or insects or cars or whatever it is that they care about. Like, when did we have that? Mm-hmm. How she, My goddaughter makes pop videos and puts them out on YouTube with her mates from just little apps that she uses. And they go down to the beach, she lives in Jersey and they go down to the beach and they make like ones that when we were kids, we would have seen on, I don't know how old you are, but I would have seen them on MTV. And they make that quality video. So I know people who've made full feature films on their phones. So personally, I feel like uh, what we have never been in a time of more imagination. And I see children now inventing, creating, and also having a place to broadcast. Because the more validation you get for your imagination, the more likely you'll put more stuff out. Um, like if you look at someone like Bo Burnham, um, Bo was a high school student writing funny songs and when I was that age if I'd written a funny song I would have been able to play it for my mum my dad some mates and he put them on YouTube and just that you can see his bedroom in the background it's like teenage posters up and people started liking them and sharing them and suddenly he had millions of hits and I first met him I think he was 19 18 something like that and I was at the Melbourne Comedy Festival and I was hosting like a late night comedy club and he'd been flown over from America um, and he just blew everyone away. He did like a half hour set of his comedy songs and everyone was like, holy fuck, this kid is incredible. And he had such confidence. But he has a, he had a platform for that imagination, which teenagers would used to not have had. So if you unless you were living in LA and your parents were, you know, connected or you went to New York and did a tough for five years living in a flat share and doing open mics there was no exposure. So only a limited amount of people had the exposure. So we can find the creative people now and they or they can find their audience rather. So I think imagination is, there is an incredible time for imagination in the way people can connect, people can put their ideas out there. It doesn't cost, say climate change, it doesn't cost anything for a company to build a website that people can, you know, uh, write their ideas uh, write their ideas in uh, you could set them problems and they you know there are always a certain amount of people on the internet who are looking to come up with creative problems you could do hack days I went and worked with a company here called rewired state um, and uh, doing creativity stuff with them and they are um, maybe I was doing helping them pitch their creative stuff but all of the people there um, and they do these like 48 hour hack days, hack weekends. Um, and they, instead of saying, oh, how can we save electricity? They say, okay, it's the zombie apocalypse. We've lost all electricity. Um, you have 48 hours to uh, find a way to um, reconnect and rewire uh, humanity so we can save ourselves. And then the ideas they come up with, they can then take into third world places that don't have access to electricity. So they really, they use imaginative scenarios. But all the people, and I knew that they used teenagers for those hack days, but a lot of the people I was working with were like teenagers. And I was like, aren't you meant to be at school or uni? 
and they were like, oh, yeah, I go to sixth form college two days a week, and then I do this, and blah, blah, blah. And one of the guys was like, yeah, I did a term at uni, but university is kind of an old technology now because we all know more than the uni. We all want to do, you know, IT in, you know, artificial intelligence programming, and we all know more than the lecturers because we're actually working in it, and it changes so fast. And I asked the guy running it, and he said, oh, um, I'm not, like someone, I, I'll work with anyone, I don't care if they're 15, and they just are amazing at programming, or they've got a first from Oxford. It's not what you know, it's, it's how fast can you change, how fast can you learn, what can you break, what can you make. And I would have, I'm equally delighted to have someone with a first from Oxford, as I will the 15-year-old, it's how, how, it's how fast they can learn and break and make stuff. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. And so they were all, um, they just all kind of you know, so thrilled to be doing this kind of thing. And they were in such an imaginative place, these people. Like, I couldn't believe how unbelievably creative and imaginative they were. Mm. Um, and they don't, like, when we were, well, I, when I was young, that age, you know, 15, 15-year-olds were just stupid grown-ups who had to learn what the grown-ups knew. And now a lot of companies are looking to young people who know more, who are more plugged into that, who are digital natives, who've got ideas. And now young people get to be the experts on things, the imaginative experts on things, because they have it in their DNA in a way that, you know, Generation X will never have that kind of digital um, imagination uh, in their in their heart and soul. Um, it, it you know it just sort of comes out of them and that's the five thousand hours thing of the you know steve jobs having access to computers when he was younger or whatever it is um i just think when i look around i see children having access to extraordinary imaginative worlds they're not just coming home and sitting there in front of the television they're they don't see they don't seem to watch television like my godchildren i say what's what's the cool tv show at school and they weren't, but it would have been like not the nine o'clock news or the fast show or, you know, that everyone goes to school and quotes the show. And now it's like, oh, we don't really watch television. And I'm like, what do you watch? And they're like YouTube. And uh, we make, uh, we, we talk about Minecraft and we make this and we do that. And um, we make, you know, pop videos and YouTube videos and we like each other's and we share and we, it was a lot more making. Like we used to just sit there and watch telly and then quote telly. We weren't making our own sketch shows, well, I wasn't. Mm, mm, mm. So I think that that's that's a, that's an extraordinary thing that's happened. Um, now it doesn't replicate the play that we had. So when we'd go out into the garden and when we were seven and eight and play police and bad guys or you know whatever other scenarios that we came up with, where we'd sort of run around and pretend to be characters. I don't think children do as much of that as they used to. Um, but that doesn't mean they're not imaginative. It means that they're responding to the imaginative stimulus that's in their world. Mm-hmm. And what, so, and, and you, you talked about how when, when you do stuff with the kids who are 10 and they, they get it and they have no fear about making fools of themselves and then you do it with the 30-year-olds and they do, what happens in, what happens in the middle I think it's probably our formal education. That's what you know. Keith always blames. Um, I think it's like if you're a kid and you're 
you know, the teacher says, write an essay about what you did on the holidays and everyone else is writing and you're just relaxed and happy and looking out the window. Um, what will happen is the teacher will shout at you and say, you, you're not even trying. And the teacher would know if you were trying because trying looks like something. If you're hunched over the paper looking worried and ill and not up to the job, the teacher will come around and do it for you. But if you're looking relaxed and happy and you're not doing anything, um, the teacher will say, you're not trying. So we, we learn to look like we're trying as children. I remember doing that. I remember not being able to do the high jump, being terrified. Like, I'll just fall on it. I didn't know how to do it. No one had shown me how. I didn't have a natural aptitude for it. I wasn't a very physical child. So I remember looking like I was really going to try and jump and then stopping at the bar, like, couldn't quite make myself do it. I never intended to jump. But I knew that if I just walked up casually and walked away, the teacher would shout at me for not trying. But as I was, I was seen to try, then I was all right. And so we, we force our children to look like they're trying and we punish them for looking relaxed. We, like, we don't like children to look relaxed, not if they're in a work environment. We're not, we're not comfortable with it. Mm. We like them to look worried and anxious. We train them to do it. And likewise, after things, if you're a kid and you're washing up and you drop a plate and you go, well, never mind, everyone drops things from time to time. These things happen. And you just clean it up in a relaxed and happy fashion. Your parents will shout at you. Because that in our society is a bad attitude. A good attitude is to cry and feel worthless. And then your mother will say, never mind, darling. It was only an accident and cleaned up for you. So we, we train our children to punish themselves before they're punished. Hmm. And I see grown-ups do it. In improv class, they get up and they look really anxious. They go tight. They do the scene and then they go, sorry, before they've had any feedback. Like, before you tell me it was terrible, I already know so we, we train them. Of course they do that. When they're little, they just come out, they have goes of things. They don't beat themselves up. And then we we kind of go, we, we honestly, we talk about children with bad attitudes if they look too relaxed. And I think also adolescence kicks in, doesn't it? You know, you, you get more self-conscious about your body. Yeah. You get more worried about what the opposite sex or the same sex will think about you. Um, you, you generate your own fear because suddenly you don't recognize your body anymore and you're understanding that you have to you know be sexually attractive in some way or you'd like to be sexually attractive in some way or you need to be sexually um you know up to making the first move and all of those things inhibit that natural playful game playing imaginative openness so i think it's probably a combination of education adolescence um uh, just response to the world outside, which doesn't mm. uh, reward and encourage imagination. 